everyone, welcome to another episode of Tapped In. In this week's episode, I interview Greg, the MD of Kaya FM. In the interview, we chat about the history of Kaya, we walk back in time and discuss how YFM came to fruition, and we discuss a little bit about art versus craft. Alongside that, Greg and I have an interesting debate around creative work and radio. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Thanks so much for uh, letting us use your office, Greg. It's amazing here. Thank you. Thanks yeah, for coming. We're at the Kai FM offices today and we're interviewing Greg. So welcome, Greg. Welcome to Tapped In. So before we get started, um, I thought you might tell me, what do you do at Kai FM? Um, well, they, they call me the managing director. And, and when I took the job, I thought, I thought it was a cool job until I realized um, being a managing director effectively means you do everything you're told. So stand here, cut this ribbon, kiss that baby, <laughs> that kind of thing. So what's the difference? What were you, what were you envisaging? I mean, you got the corner office. This is a beautiful <laughs> office. So well, yeah, I was, I was kind of hoping for, uh, you know, more hours on the golf course. Yeah. Uh, long lunches, that kind of thing. But it didn't turn out that way. So, so what does it? What does the average day then include for you? Um, look, it's a variety of things. Uh, the thing I love about um, a radio station is that you are pretty much involved in different kinds of businesses. Um, you know, so it's not just your one. You know, you've got a variety of people who, uh, you know, as a first as a commercial radio station, uh, you are dealing with, you know, all the businesses of the clients that are advertising on your station. Um, intimate knowledge of industries, brands, where they position, and so forth is, is quite critical. Over and above that, um, what's even more critical is understanding of yourself, your market, the people you are hoping to connect with the audiences and so forth. Uh, so that's just on the one side. And then the other is uh, um, a lot to do with you know, the creation of the product or the formulation of the car product um, and how um, you know, it ties you back into audience plus advertiser. Uh, so a lot of intelligence has to go into that, in, you know, intelligence reports, um, you know, getting intel in the market, uh, you know, uh, tons of research and so forth uh, is, is, is involved. And then, and then there's a whole section of innovation that you've also got to be involved in. So how are you keeping uh, your listener on top of trends uh, or how you keep yourself on top of trends first and then, you know, how you take your audience along and how you allow them to take you into spaces as well um, and then create that conversation with the advertiser. Uh, so, you know, I'm constantly thinking about those particular things in that frame. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of other things which are really boring that I don't like very much. So, you know, all the legislative stuff, um, you know, anything from possible banning of, you know, alcohol advertising mm. to sugars and sweets later and, you know, that kind of stuff is, is something that one's got to stay on top of just from a, a legislation framework uh, point of view. Um, and then there's a variety of social uh, agendas that we run. We care a lot about children in their formative years, so there are f you know, uh, various uh, programs and products that we run um, that focus on you know, trying to improve young kids' lives. Um, and then you know, part of creating the product is also you know, we are a 60 music, 40% talk kind of hybrid. Um, so again, being on top of you know, the whole music space, I'm you know, kind of also 
in, involved and plugged in in the music industry, uh, you know, from a digital aspect to the creation of some of the music to, you know, uh, sort of being involved with the music culture, you know, for the longest time. Um, so bringing all of that into the space is uh, uh, a part of my role, but also looking at what are the big conversations that are happening in, in, in uh, you know, in Gauteng, in South Africa, and generally in the world. And again, you know, weaving those into a, a talk product of sorts. So, you know, it's it's quite involved. It's it's a lot of things, uh, but all linked, yeah. you know, in a sense. So that's pretty much what, what I do on a daily. So now we kind of got a good idea of what you do. Let's, I suppose, let's take a step back in time. Walk us through the history. Okay, well, jeez. My first radio station, I was 13 years old. Oh. Uh, and, and I owned that. It was my own station. Every time I say that, people go, oh, wow, that's really great. So who did you broadcast to? Well, actually, let me tell you how the station happened. Um, I, I used to uh, make tapes. I used to record you know, my own station on, on tapes. So I had a microphone, turntable, tape deck, a tuner. Yep. Um, so I a whole bunch of soul records and you know, plug up the mic onto the cassette deck, everything else was linked onto the cassette deck. So I'll do a link, play a song, I'd pick ads from a tuner you know, repeat process, playback, it's a station, you know. Uh, so that's pretty much how. So I had tapes, um, you know, as a kid. So you're sampling ads? Uh, so I was sampling ads, you know, yeah. um, and, you know, planting them into my... So I would wait. This was like a very tricky you know, little exercise. So I'd literally wait, you know, for, uh, you know, the station. And I think it was Radio 5 because I was, you know, building a, an English medium uh, channel. So Radio 5 was the only uh, station I was picking up. Uh, well, it's now 5FM. <laughs> I was picking up on on the tuner. The radio station I listened to was Radio Bob, but that was through a TV set, mm -hmm. you know, connected into speakers, so you couldn't necessarily get that signal onto onto the onto the tape. But all I was looking for was, you know, sort of English messaging. So you'd pick those up, you know, put them on, do a little bit of a rough edit because you'd kind of rewind in some instances and kind of restart the tape at a certain point where the ad ends. You start off with your link or with a track. Um, and yeah, that's that's how I created it. So how important, because I'm just going to stop you there because that sounds fascinating. I remember reading an article on the early Beastie Boys and, and their process seemed like it was also just about sampling and cutting up sounds that they, they thought were familiar. Yeah. Um, do you think that's still important now that we move to digital mediums? You know, like that ability to... I, th I think so I think absolutely because um, you know in the end it's it's um, you know d digital is is a, is a tool and it's a means to uh, perform actions or express ideas you know easier and quicker um, it doesn't give you the idea you know so mm. even with the tools that are there I mean you know uh, digital, provides you the opportunity to, I mean I, I sat there with stacks of records and you know I waited for ads in the digital environment I could pretty much have mm. all those things in one space but you still have to have the creativity to pick the right things and put all of those things together um, and and I think some people make the mistake of thinking that the digital environment literally you know uh, does things for you although it has created um, I mean a, you know a little bit of laziness mm. uh, where where you still want art. So for instance, I went to an event. Uh, so we had an event in, in Durban where uh, it's, it, you know, we do, we do a, um, a, a conference with four of my other friends, Oskido, 
DJ Christos, Vinny Da Vinci, and Fresh. So we've been running this music conference for the last 11 years. Um, so this year, part of the thing was also to give the stage to these youngsters to perform. And there was one guy who was, you know, playing on his computer. And I mean, I know we've moved from mm. vinyls to CDs to memory sticks to, you know, computers, whatever, and, and that's great. But for me, I, I had an issue watching a guy standing there with a laptop, no headphones, you know, no mixing yeah. whatsoever, and literally it's just picking tracks. Everything is kind of, it's tracked, it's lined up, and it's beat matched. And I'm thinking, okay, you're not working. You know what I mean? I might as well teach my 13-year-old son to do that. And, and I've got a party. I still want to see someone get down and do some work. Because I was going to ask, I mean, I, ba- I kind of badly phrased the question around the difference between art and craft. Yeah. Because I think technology has allowed lots of people to practice the craft of music, but not the art of music. Uh, and tr- whether that so- early sampling era was kind of more, it, w- it weeded out the craft, the people who were good at the craft. It, it did. I mean, I think the, the what's, what's important for me um, is and and if you look at both these examples, uh, I suppose when you when you're listening, um, and when you're listening and watching, it's two different things, you know. So if if uh, if if a person was doing that because it's a post-production process and they want to get certain things perfect, then understood. So there is um, there is absolute necessity in. Uh, some instances where you say I will create the art and then I will perfect it you mm-hmm. know uh, and, and make it seamless if I am taking it into a certain environment because you know when you mix live uh, you never mix the same way all the time you know uh, and if you want to create a packaged product that you want to take somewhere else granted you could kind of put the arts and the thing together and then you know uh, you know progress it into another space but if the pro- progression or what's meant to be progression is actually <laughs> what is presented as the art, then it's a bit of an issue for me. So there is a um, there is a need to you know sort of understand the difference between the two and and the need to create your own expression. Because otherwise, if you don't have the art, even if you kind of have packaged something as an art, it will always stand out as not. That's true. Yeah. So let, let's go back. You're a 13 year old radio mogul, uh, <laughs> cutting up, cutting up Five FM or then Radio Five's uh, ads. So where to from there? Um, I then went to um, well to my real life. Really, um, I had to go to school <laughs> like any other kid growing up in Deep and so too. Um, and that's that radio thing almost died because I mean also you know back in the day it wasn't um, really a you know, career choice, you know. Um, I don't have to bore you with the history of this country and how, um, you know, township kids were oriented, basically. You know, you you, there was, you don't grow up wanting to be a jock or run a radio station, mm. you know. And and I think as well, in the way that the, the DJs, the presenters around that time, uh, you know, kind of portrayed and presented themselves, you know, you felt like they were somewhere sitting in the clouds next to God and no one can reach them, yeah. you know. Uh, so it, it always felt unreachable. Um, but it was when I got to, so way past high school or middle school, high school, uh, and then I went to Technicon. I went to Technicon Northern Transvaal, which is uh, the famous TNT mm-hmm. in uh, Soshanguvin. 
Um, and I remember, I mean, I was one of those guys who registered late, never had enough cash to register, didn't have accommodation, you know, the usual stories. Um, and just one time walking around the campus, I saw a radio station. I was like, heaven, this was the first time I'd seen an actual radio station, you know, uh, and they had just built it. Uh, and it was a campus radio station which broadcast you know, to the cafeteria uh, and like the few reses that yeah. were in front of the studio. The studio had speakers outside. And at night, some of these students would complain that the studio was making noise. So you'd have to turn down the studios and play into the cafeteria. The cafeteria closed down at nine. So, you know, after nine, you didn't have an audience. You know? <laughs> so, so it was that, that sort of thing. But it was exciting to, uh, you know, see an actual radio station. And I, and I went to, to go and sign up. And I was told I was late. They already had, uh, you know, people signed up for the year. They have six monthly intakes. So I must come back in six months. I'm like, I can't wait six months to, you know. So I waited, I think, about a week. And then I went back. The guy who was uh, the station manager of the campus station was a guy called Joe Intertling. And he had a, a show, uh, a 12 to 3 show midday. Now, that's prime time mm. in campus radio, you know, when you're doing a 12 to 3 show. That's when everyone is on break. The cafeteria is buzzing, you know. Um, so I said to him, look, let me produce for you. And I, I'm a, I think I'm a good, you know, music compiler, you know, come producer kind of guy. I can bring in my collection to, you know, to, to have a look. And he says, okay, sure, bring your stuff. So I went and I picked, I mean, I used to collect music. I've been collecting since I was, you know, 14 or so. So I brought uh, a, you know, a couple of CDs uh, and I showed him stuff. And I was like, wow, this, you know looking at the staff is thinking no listen I want to have you as my producer so he goes and he tells all the other guys ironically um, Tebos, who now does uh, 9 to 12 mornings on Kaya um, was there as, as a first sort of intake guy so they were the guys who were already um, on air um, and I had met Tebos at some high school contest thing we had done on TV so I knew him in high school when, when we were in matric so I, and I kind of knew Tebos. Uh, and I went up to him and I said, you know, dude, nice to see you. So, you know, can we get in here? What's going on? And I was like, ah, you know, you have to you know, talk to these guys, whatever. So, <laughs> so I go to Joey and I present my music. He likes my music. He goes off to the guys and he says, remember that guy that came here? He's got nice collections. I want to use him. You guys can't touch me in music now. Because Campus Radio was also about competition, you know, who had the best music, yes. who had, you know, the best vibe, whatever. Uh, the station didn't have as much music. Uh, collection, all the cool stuff kind of people had personally. And the material I had, I mean, was you know, basically on another level. But what was really cool about, and I suppose this is a story for any campus, was there was a guy, Izzy um, Vilankulu, uh, who had probably the largest collection, uh, not probably, he had the largest collection on campus. Anything from soul to um, jazz to fusion, he had like the best vibes, you know. And I didn't have as big a collection as he did, but I had things he didn't have, which is a big thing in that collector's yeah. circle. You know, it's like, okay, so this guy's got, you know, all these things. Who are you type of thing, you know? But I had only pulled out a sample for Joey. You know, I hadn't pulled out, yeah. you know, my entire collection. So the one time um, he had a class test and, um, you know, he had forgotten to get a stand-in. So there I was, rocking up at 12 o'clock. I wasn't going to class. I was like, uh, go to class in the morning, 
and then come to produce the show. And I get there, um, and Joey says, listen, I forgot to get a stand-in. Can you hold on a second? I need to, you know, get a stand-in. It's like around quarter to 12. I said, but I'm here. I, you know, I can stand in for you, you know. Mm. He says, are you sure? Do you know, do you know lay of the land? And he's under pressure because he's got to go, you know, for this test. His colleagues told him the test starts at 12. So he says, okay, do it, you know. I uh, trust you. You've kind of been around me for a couple of weeks or so, so, you know. I think you can handle it. You've seen how I do what I do, so go on and do this thing. So uh, he goes off to class, gets to class, discovers that the test is actually cancelled. By the time he gets back, it's obviously like 20 past uh, 12. But as they walk back, he sees all the other cats from the station. They were walking from class to the cafeteria. He says, listen, let's go to the cafeteria and listen to that guy. Remember the guy, Greg, whatever? They said, yeah. So they all go, like the whole crew. And uh, the cafeteria is full. It's packed. And I'd gone back to my room and I extended my collection now, mm. and I came back bro let's just say you know I I I was I was I had to be you know at my best uh, because this was the one shot that I got um, and I went in there played my heart out in fact that was how I met my first girlfriend you know at the camp so you impressed her with the you know, with um, your collection, and she heard a track. She was like, "What? What? What's?" Because a lot of people were thinking, "Okay, the station sounds different." You know, what's on there? Because they were sort of used to the sound of the station. That what was, was the sound at the, at the time? At the time, the sound was um, it was very commercial. So, you know, there was a there was a temptation for a lot of campus radio stations to kind of replicate uh, what was big then. So, what Radio Metro was, or what Radio Bob was. So. Uh, in fact, not even Bob, more Metro, because I was, you know, national, and you know, people liked the uh, commercial sound. What we did was we brought in a blend. Um, so what I used to do is is is, is literally blend um, uh, what was commercial and not so much of it with a lot of stuff that was huge underground, right? That wasn't played on radio, but that was, you know, sort of regarded as. Um, expensive music amongst collectors but also cool sounds amongst a lot of people who loved music and could never access that sort of sound um so just to give an idea uh, a thing like loose ends you know a band like loose ends wasn't a band you would hear play on radio all the time um soul to soul innocence mm. you know um you know so and in fact a lot of the the uk era um around that time uh, and a lot of the sort of R&B dance stuff that came out of the US uh, a lot of the early house music that was there you know so kind of like a very clever blend of music without necessarily being stuck in era or genre but you know sort of creating you know a specific sound or something that and were you thinking about that when you were there I mean you're, you're quite early days in your radio career and, and you're thinking about the identity of, of this was uh, this was largely driven from a feeling more than anything. I think it was only later on in life where I defined it. So w when I started to, uh, you know, s sort of think about radio, uh, you know, professionally, uh, I had to find words to explain the things that I was thinking, that I was feeling, the things I was observing, um, you know, but all of it was a reflection of that all the time. It was, you know, you know, going to a birthday party in Maryland and kind of watching people get down to soul to soul and thinking, wow, this is incredible. and thinking I'm not hearing Soul to Soul on radio. And then playing it on campus radio, people thinking, shit, where did you get that? You know, that sort of thing. Um, so it, it's, 
it, it became almost like an art that got to be defined later, you know, uh, because you, you, you then had to explain it to people later on in life when you became the music manager, when you became the program manager. I was going to ask, have you, have you since, because a, l- a lot of y- uh, people always reflect on their youth as saying that was the best of times, you know, like it felt most free. Have you, have you ever since had that same feeling of like, I've been able to make the, that same sound or tap into that sound, same sound, or is that what you strive for now? I think you, you never stop striving for it. Every um, era has its, you know, apex and, and uh, you know, you, and I think the challenge in life is, are you able to hit those heights with, with every year? You know, with every you know decade, with every era, with every kind of level of trend, are you able to stay relevant uh, throughout that time? Um, you know, I and I, I was lucky enough to be in positions that reflected my own personal progression in life. I mean, out of campus radio, I went into YFM. You know, and I was a very young guy um, who was just fresh out of campus, so straight from the streets, from the ground, so understood that whole culture in its kind of rawest and truest form and always strived to, you know, put it onto a platform. Uh, and, you know, as, 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 as honest as it was, you know, and as risky as it was from a commercial proposition mm. point of view, um, but always felt that this, this was an opportunity to always create an expression. Um, you know, and, and, and or at least a platform for this particular expression. So, um, I, you know, the, the the fact that my personal life stages kind of reflected the different stations I was working at and being involved in the different cultures gave me the opportunity, you know, to say I was able to touch it. You know, I was able to touch those heights. Yeah, the guys from Nike always speak about know them to serve them, which always resonates with me so much. I mean, yeah. what you just described now is being impassioned enough to go and actually hear what other people are listening to. You know, that yep. that idea of watching people get down to loose ends, was it? Yeah. Yep. Um, and then taking that and and reflecting it on your in your taste and your music. I mean, that for me is such a prevailing trend, or maybe it's something that people are missing so much now, which is to go and be part of the community that you serve. I mean, and, and, and just to show you how important it was to be true, to that community, there were things about that community that were not appealing to me, but that I had to give equal attention to. Um, so believe it or not, and when I say this, a lot of people never believe it, I, I used to loathe Kwaito, I never used to like Kwaito at all, okay? Um, and, and I'm talking about the early stuff, right? Uh, and it was good stuff, mm. but here's why I was disconnected from it. You know, having come out of, uh, you know, apartheid South Africa where you know, you're almost kind of taught to say anything about you, anything you've created, anything that's from people like you who are creating it, is inferior, right? Um, and thinking and looking at everything international as, you know, this is it. And what was worse was when you when you kind of looked at, you know, uh, those um, productions, you know, if I have to kind of uh, re- reduce them to that, um, you know, having grown up in an environment where you knew the difference between, you know, a uh, Suchmore and Clark Terry trumpet, you know, uh, and then having to listen to, uh, you know, Atama Fugati, 
do like a song. I said, <laughs> Jesus, like, you know, what the hell is this? You know, so you grow up with, you know, kind of like a very rich, um, you know, heritage of music stuff that's been around for decades. And, and here you've got, you know, uh, you know, whether it was Trompis or Skiro, you know, Omdu, uh, you know, kind of starting out a whole new era. Um, and judging them purely musically, I was like, no, no it's not even a, in a comparison. Yeah. But it was when I got into, um, you know, campus um, radio, and I had to now be face to face with people who were into that style of music and who liked it. Uh, and naturally, people I thought were cool. And I started to sit back and think, okay, well, what is it about the sound, whatever. But for me, the big thing was when I started to interact with the guys, or the guys that were making the music. Uh, and very soon I realized these are young guys who are brave enough to create a new, you know, uh, expression. So sure, they don't have it right yet. It's because they don't have the best facilities. And, you know, but just like I'm trying to make it in radio, they are trying to make it in music. They are trying to create music. And in fact, we are perfect because we need each other in this particular exercise. They have an art that they are trying to express and that art isn't getting the platform that it deserves. I am lucky enough to be in a platform that can give this art expression beyond you know, the 500 or the 1,000 or the 5,000 people who are at a festival. Um, and I can do that on a daily basis for them. Um, and, and at that point, I mean, I took a decision. I thought, you know, uh, if, if, if you are to be part of something major in your own life, in your own space, this is it. You know, this is the one thing that we have, we own, that we've created. Uh, so, you know, we might as well go with it and, and try it out. Um, and that's actually around the same time that I met Oskido, who's, uh, you know, now a friend, you know, for over 20 years and a business partner. Um, and we, through probably, not probably, actually, the biggest festival uh, in the 90s, in my view, of popular music was an because back in the day, uh, there were those popular 12 to 12, you know, kind of gigs, uh, or 6 to 12, you know, 6 p.m. till uh, whatever, uh, or 12 to 6 the next morning. So, you know, you had these, these kinds of parties. We did a we did an 18-hour thing, <laughs> you know. Um, we had all the major artists, you know, who were big then, some who hadn't even stepped on a stage with more than 5,000 people. And we put out this event. Uh, and I mean, there were big events that were done around that time. So Little Amorik Dam and, you know, in Mabatu, and, you know, all the, you know, uh, big spaces. But there was nothing like this. We called it Imbizo, you know, uh, which was inspired by a song by Puzu Kemis, you know, Njalanje mm. Konimbizo. Njalanje Konimbizo. So we, we named the... The event after that song, and Mbizo is a gathering, you know, uh, it's getting people together. And we got together 25,000 people, Jeez. right? And I mean, I'm just a guy, man, who runs a campus radio station, you know, uh, at the time. And, you know, he's 
um, you know, a, a popular DJ, you know, and producer, you know, they have a stable Kalawa, Jasmine, you know, it's, everything is at its infancy, you know, this is 1994. Um, and in fact, they just had Kalawa then, it wasn't even Kalawa Jasmine at the time. And, you know, we created this massive event. Um, we put out like a 60 bean sound system. It was huge, you know. Uh, and one of the best gigs we've ever put out. So, you know, and, and guys like, uh, you know, when Dr. Kumar and Bob Mabena had their hit, they performed it for the first time on that stage. Uh, Boomshaka played on that stage. Uh, you know, Vinny Da Vinci DJed on that stage. Um, you know, Duma Sidela performed. Trumpies played. Everybody. So how did two young guys, one find the wherewithal to put that together and the cash to put it together? I mean, how did you assemble this thing? Well, there were there were several things. So one, um, obviously, this was a, a a paying event. So you know, you had your gate takings basically, which were a revenue stream, and we had um, um, a production sponsor, right? And these were thin sponsorships. I mean, they weren't like millions and millions mm. of rands. Uh, so we had one sort of production sponsor, a guy who covered. Um, uh, kind of like the stage and some of the artists. And with some of the artists, I mean, 60% of the artists, we said to them, listen, you know, you you get your thing after the gig. And, you know, artists back then were fine with that. It's like, as long as there's <laughs> a stage, we want to perform. If you pay us later, great, you know? So th so there was that. So, you know, we had kind of like a mixed model sort of thing uh, to, to run this event. Um, and funny enough, the guy that, that was a, a, you know, part sponsor was... Uh, Leslie Klocko, who's now you know head of SABC Radio, who was at the time with Appletizer, I, I think you know. And so he you know sort of took a risk. And I mean, back in the day, Appletizer, Black Youth, in Jesus, this was like I mean unheard of. Um, and you know there was some cash um, that that Oskido put in largely, you know, because he was really trading as a business. Uh, so you know a lot of the risk was was really on his end. You know, and I just came in with the creative side, with the marketing side, and basically the packaging of the eventing. You know, we joined this thing, and you know, we created a massive, massive thing. Um, so it was around that time that I had a true appreciation of local music and its potential. You know, because at some point you are standing at the corner of the stage, and Boomshaka is on performing, and the whole place is going ape, and you're thinking. Wow, so is this what happens when I put the song on air? You know, uh, I remember there was a track I liked uh, from uh, a band called Cheesecop. You know, it was called Glamour. I mean, I used to play that on the breakfast show. And we played it there, and the whole place went mad. And I thought, damn, half, not, well, more than half the people who were there. Are students at the state at the campus, so obviously they've heard this thing, you know, and that's when you start to connect the power of broadcast and 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 how important it is, you know, to be responsible with that medium because you all of a sudden see how you affect people and how people pay attention, um, and yeah, I mean, at that point, um, you know, my appreciation for the music changed. I mean, because I learned about the people who were trying to do stuff in this space and I learned about how I could help that process uh, and we were able to multiply those efforts when when we got to YFM you know uh, because you know straight from from campus 
there was a guy, um, uh, Peter Mukhot, who was this quiet intellectuals. He was uh, in the. He wasn't in the student council. He was in the Sasco at the time. But like one of the brightest guys I've I've, I've ever known. Very level-headed, very conscious guy. Um, and he he said to me once, "Hey man, you know there's a station opening up in Johannesburg, you know, called YFM." Um, you know, you guys have done so well with the campus radio station here, because at that time, what we had done was we we had already grown it into a community radio station. In fact, I could be wrong, but I think we were the first campus community radio station uh, in the country, because a lot of community stations came up as community uh, stations. Um, a lot of campus radio stations basically serviced campuses. We. We used to service our campus and literally our cafeteria, um, but we went to then it was uh, um, the IBA before it became ICASA, and we applied for a community license. Uh, and I remember Soshanguve, the Soshanguve community was also applying for a license. And I mean, their story was, look, these guys are temporary people. They come in, they spend three years, four years, and they're out. You know, we the community, we need to get the license. Our story was, yes, they need to get the license. They are the community of Sushanguvi. They need to service the entire community of Sushanguvi. We are also part of this same community, but we're servicing a totally different market altogether. We want to have a different kind of conversation because this is a different kind of community. A lot of the kids from that area go to this you know, uh, tech, so it's a great separation. And both of us got the license. Um, and, you know... Obviously, um, we you know went for a different market. This was a youth market. This was kind of like a mini YFM, if you like, in, in that approach. Even though I had it launched at that time, um, you know. So you know, effectively, that's and that's that's how you know sort of like the campus story ended. And 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 I was told about YFM, and and I went. I went for auditions. Um, what did you audition for? <laughs> this is actually another funny story. So <laughs> I get there. Uh, you know, to the auditions. I mean, they had advertised this thing on the Soweto. Now, bro, this is 1990, early 97. All right. Now, there's millions of young people looking for, <laughs> you know, expression, looking for all kinds of things, employment, whatever. So I get there. My man, there's like six, uh, no, 600, 600 people on the queue. Right, and everybody's there to audition for a DJ spot. The station is probably only looking for, I don't know, 12, 15 people. <laughs> and there I was on this queue. Uh, I find Oskido on this queue. I haven't seen him for about a year or so. I find him on this queue. Fresh is on that queue. Root Boy Paul is on that queue. Uh, and many other people. You know, like Pindi. Like, listen, it, so I'm sitting there thinking, Okay, um, surely there must be 50, 60 people here who are better than me, you know, and this audition process is just going to, you know, slow me down. I need to find a way to stand out. Um, so, you know, I ask for, uh, you know, a, a notebook. So I get a notebook and a pen, and I start jotting down some thoughts. I put together this two-pager, which is crazy because, uh, you know, the two-pager was based on a number of things. So one, 
my observation of you know how they were trying to run the thing and two what I thought the station should be right so from music to marketing to so I did like you know a few paragraphs get a two pages together as I'm moving along on the queue now the thing about this is uh, um, you know when you were looking for a job in the 90s um, and there's a lot of you even after being processed you don't leave right because things might change you don't yeah. want to be the guy that left <laughs> and they said, where are the guys yeah, in exactly. the process? Exactly, they call out and they waiting for your email in the 90s, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, so there was perpetually 600 people all the time, right? So, you know, so I'm on this queue and I'm moving along uh, and out comes this guy, uh, Aravi Mucheke, the late Aravi Mucheke, who was uh, the music manager designate. Uh, so he and uh, another guy called Smu Mumala, the general, uh, you would know him as the general, um, you know, were, were going to be sort of like the music managers for the station. And they were tasked, obviously, with finding the talent. Right? Uh, so the station had, what, about 10 people who would be the executive. Um, no staff, no one else whatsoever, no... Uh, and, and, and they were housed in... Um, the old Radio Freedom Studios in Bertrams, uh, which in itself was kind of like a you know a goosebumps type of thing, you know, to launch a youth station, you know, uh, and Radio Freedom was was an amazing story, um, and you know, and and that was it, and the station had forty CDs, so that's it, that's like you know, <laughs> this is and a license, obviously. Yeah, license. using the word station very loosely there, yeah. forty CDs <laughs> and a license. You know? So, so. Um, so, you know, this is the audition process. So I see him, you know, I see him as, you know, one of the main guys. So I call him out. I said, listen, I've got these two pages I'd like you to read. You know, he takes my two pages, um, disappears under a tree somewhere, lights a spliff. Four hours is gone, right? I'm thinking, shit, maybe I pissed him off or something. It's okay, I had to try. Four hours later, he emerges. I'm still not processed, right? Because yeah. it's just like, it's a long queue, right? Uh, and it reappears. And he's looking around, and I'm thinking, okay, he's looking for me. So I stick my neck out, and he says, yeah, you, come here. So I go to him, he says to me, did you write this? I said, yeah, I wrote this. So when did you write this? He said, no, whilst on the queue now. He says, what the hell do you know about this stuff? You know, I said, uh, one or two things, nothing hectic. So he says to me, okay, um, we have a management meeting tomorrow. Can you come? Like, oh, I don't know, let me look at my <laughs> diary. I mean, geez, are you kidding me? Geez, of course. She says, okay, we have a meeting, 8.30, um, you know, every morning, so I'll make sure you're there. Don't be late. I said, no, I won't be late. I'll be there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, but then I stick around until the end of the day, yep. and I leave. The next morning, I was there at 6.45 in the morning. I was already at the gate, waiting. Um, at 7.00 kids started to pull in, you know. By 8 o'clock, we were back to like 400 people, you know, there's people waiting. So everybody yeah. wants a shot, you know. Um, and then these guys start trickling in, you know. Uh, the meeting didn't happen at 8.30, needless to say, and I was hungry as hell, but I was waiting. You know, I was, I was like I was famished, I was about to die, but I waited, I waited. Um, eventually, he arrives around... 
9, 9.15, he looks for me, he finds me. And at this point, I'm like standing on the other gate because you don't want to be mixed up with the other crowd. You know, it's on, like, on the other side. So he comes out and I'm, you know, waiting at reception. He says, oh, yeah, um, we'll meet now. So that meeting, I think, happened around half past 11 or something, but it happened. So we walk into the boardroom, right? Now, I'm 22 at the time. You know, hood boy, no boardroom etiquette whatsoever. Um, so I walk in, and I'm very hungry, and they had a little kitchenette, so they would normally walk in, make coffee, and then come, you know, and sit down. So I'm thinking, if I could just go in there, hit a coffee <laughs> with, like, five sugars to just get my energies up. And I'm thinking, no, 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 don't be presumptuous. Don't be a punk. Be cool, you know. Just go sit down. So I go in, I sit down. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, I, I sit at the head of the table. I, you know, I don't know these things. You know, so I go in and I sit at the head of the table. So I sit there and I sit quietly, have my notebook and my pen, and I'm waiting. So now they start walking in. So the, you know, and everybody walks in and they're like, who is this punk? That's happened to me. My first, <laughs> my first big meeting in advertising, I sat in the CEO's desk and Ooh. I thought, oh dear, <laughs> what have I done? Exactly. <laughs> so they ignore me, walk in, make coffee, come out, everybody sits down. And then the CEO walks in, uh, Dirk Hartford, coolest guy ever, you know. I mean, that's you know, it's just he was he was the man, right? So he walks in, finds me in his chair. Guess what he does? Sits on the opposite side. Okay. So, but at this point, I don't n- notice anything. No, you don't wrong. know the games. I mean, the games underway. Yeah. So I don't know what the hell's going on. So I'm sitting down, and so Harabi starts off by saying. Um, I've got this young champion that I met yesterday. I think he's got a few things to contribute. I hope there's no objections in him being in the meeting. I'm thinking, please, no <laughs> one object. People are like, oh, Arabi, you and your kids, who cares? Kid can sit. We've got things to do here. First line item on the agenda is the auditions. How are the auditions going? People talk, talk, they argue, argue, argue. And Arabi's trying to say, yeah, but that's why. I won't. They're like, no, no, tell us. So they're arguing, arguing, arguing. Eventually, Dirk turns around and says to me, what do you think? I'm like, okay, he's, you are asking me what I think. Yeah, okay, so I compose myself. And I told him my thoughts. And he says to me, um, can we swear here? Yeah, of course. What the, fu- what the fuck are you waiting for? <laughs> Go down there and do it. And, you know, they had liked the idea of how I was proposing to run the auditions. And they said, Fuck it, you go do it. So I went down, <laughs> and I get there. There was a guy called Desmond, um, Desmond Mashaba. We called him that nigga Des later <laughs> on in life. And Des uh, was the technical producer, you know, so he was the guy creating the jingles, lining them up, and, you know, helping with the auditioning process. Because guys would come in, you would record a thing and you'd go away notes would be taken you know that kind of thing and then people would listen later and see who you know was fitting so I go in there um, and I introduce myself you know hi days I'm so and so I've just come from upstairs like oh okay no 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 uh, Arabi told me about you come come you know so and they said okay now you're gonna work with this guy this guy's gonna run the auditions he's like cool no problem you know Des was really cool about this so I come in <laughs> and then now I've got to deal with the guys I was on the queue with. And Fresh is the first guy who says, wait a minute, my man, 
but you were on the queue with us yesterday. I'm like, yeah. And you're auditioning us today. I'm like, yeah. Says, who did you sleep with, my man? I'm like, I'm not going to tell you. That's my secret. Now everybody's standing in line. Here's how we're going to do this thing. And so you went from uh, 1F600 to the guy at the front? Basic, you know. Um, and, from and a two-page. From a two-page. Two-page idea. That I put together. And, and that was the start of my career uh, at Y. Um, and I volunteered there. Uh, for the next eight months, I was. I was going to ask you: At what point did you realize that what you had wasn't a job yet? Because the other guys were auditioning to be talent. Yeah. And what you had was I mean, that guy. I was, yeah. That guy who would fix things. It was, and and I became that guy who would fix things. You know, and and you you can't because the thing is that it's infancy. This is literally it, the thing is being born, and you are helping with everything. You know, uh, so I was I was kind of like uh, you know. Um, a 13 spanner, you know, mm. a 13 spanner, you know, basically fits in many spaces. And, and I was that guy, that's what I was doing. Um, and it got to a point where I was spending literally 12, 13, 14, 15 hours there, you know, because then you had to now think about the music strategy, then you have to think about the programming strategy, then you have to think about, you know, a variety of things to put together, um, you know. Um, and at the time, Randall Abrams was supposed to come join as the station manager, but he was still in Cape Town, and there was, you know, kind of all this work that needed to be done. Um, and you know, I was doing that work with with the guys that were there, uh, and and in, they trusted me with a lot of stuff, you know. So they put me at the front, and you know, all the ideas, all the packaging of those ideas, and all the thoughts, you know. I mean, I bounced off a lot with with these guys, but you know, pretty much ninety percent of the stuff that I was proposing was was being accepted. Um, so for nine months, eight months, I was volunteering, you know, running out of bus money sometimes, waiting for Dirk by the stairs, and like, you dude, I ain't got no money to go home and to come to work tomorrow, you know. Um, and, you know, and so it went. Uh, but I think one of my favorite moments was um, the, the towards launch. So, you know, you, so, uh, uh, the IBA gave you a... Sig- a test signal period so we had to test your signal make sure things work um, and that's prior to your launch um, so we chose September 15th uh, for this and um, so the idea was you know this was our first broadcast okay um, but it's usually a quiet thing right so you just it's a technical thing it's, you know before you market we marketed that date with friends mm. <laughs> you know and this is where I had <coughs> respect for word of mouth, right? Because we just told people, told friends, friends told friends, et cetera, et cetera. On the day uh, we launched, people were waiting. And this was not launch, this was test signal. So people were waiting. Um, and, you know, we had prepared a bulletin and all that stuff, and it was really cool. It was a lady, Tandanani Lamini. Uh, you know, who was the news editor, and you know, she read out the first bulletin. And um, someone went and got Beaches to be the first ad, which was really cool. Still have mad respect for them for taking a chance there. So we had a Beaches ad that we played, and then there was the big issue about what the first song would be, right? And you know, I because I was doing the music, I was like, okay, it's gonna be a local song, you know. And we chose Bongo Muffin. You know, with the track Makema, and we played that. Now, how test signal works is you've got to wait 
Oh, so you've got to play it anything between four and 24 hours. Okay. And then, you know, at, at that point you are happy that, you know, all the tests are made. So the idea would be, so first you play out, you tune into the radio, okay, it's playing. And then you drive around, you pick up spots, you know, uh, where there's dead spots so that stuff can be fixed, you know. So in a week, you know, is usually enough to do that. So we've given ourselves two weeks. Came the fourth hour, um, all the excitement died down in the studio because everybody was in the studio, you know, popping champagne, blah, 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 blah. blah. So the studio died down because everybody now went out to drive around, right? But all of Yeovil was tuned in. Uh, all of uh, Bez Valley was tuned in. All of Soweto was tuned in. I mean, when I say all, pretty much a lot of people. You mm. know, uh, the East Rand, you know, Central Josie, it was kind of like buzzing. At hour six, uh, we were getting phone calls from the guys who were driving us. So all the guys, the exec guys at the time, had, you know, driven us. So guys called, yeah, we sounding fine, but wow, okay, great. Yeah, no, we sounding whatever. This and this was a phone that wasn't connected to the station, so this was kind of the conversation. Mm. I am there playing, so this is me playing with forty station CDs. I think I had like fifteen of mine there. Uh, so you know, fifty-five CDs. I'm thinking it'll last twenty-four hours. You know, we'll repeat some songs. Should be fine. Um, and Des is there lighting up the jingle, so this is two of us in this. Just Playing, playing, playing. So hour six, you know, pick up the phone. So where are you guys? No, 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 no. We in the Val. No, we there, we there. And I said it was sounding great. After lunchtime, we were starting because we started at six a.m. that morning. After lunchtime, we were getting phone calls from people now. Sounding good. I'm like, who are you? <laughs> no, I'm so and so. I'm so and so's friend. And da, 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 da. we found the number. I'm like, what? Okay. Came towards evening. Now we're asking, okay, uh, Dirk, so what do we do, man? Because now we, people are phoning, you know? <laughs> like, what the hell? It's like, okay, how are you guys feeling, though? It's like, no, 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 we're good. We're good. It's like, okay, let's do it for 24 hours. So we get in there. We hit the thing, 24 hours. Come the next day, it's worse. Now people are, and we haven't slept at this point, okay? Now it's getting more hype, more hype, more hype. I'm thinking, oh, my God, like, you know, so I said to Des, Des, I have a crazy idea. I says, what? I'm like, okay. I need you to go take a power nap, two hours, okay? When you come back, I'm going to go, right? So you keep playing. So here's some CDs. And then I'll come back. And then we'll have to work out a system. So it's no problem. So he goes, takes it power nap, I keep playing, I keep playing, I'm slowing down, slowing down, but the excitement is fueling it, you yeah. know, it's like the adrenaline is pumping. He wakes up two, three hours later, he takes over, I drive home. Uh, I remember I had my mother's small Honda 150 bug, I drive that thing mad. Um, I had a, a shared an apartment and, you know, and, and I was and also kind of at my, at my mom's in DK. So, drove, picked up CDs, at my apartment, drove to DK, picked up a couple of t-shirts and some changing stuff, toilet bag, came back to the station. Now we had a shower thing upstairs, you know. Went upstairs, took a shower, 15 minute nap, woke up, right? This is now all inside four hours, okay? 
for two weeks we were there right living out of the living <laughs> out of the station playing and remember this is not digital age this is cd age right two weeks played non-stop 24 hours okay and we interchanged um, but i had literally one hour of shower sleep shit sex anything you can fit in that hour that's was it and we would go back and go back and go back and go back and i mean i remember um like the last weekend remember we had already employed djs right so the last weekend i called two of the guys to come and help uh, and it was a guy called Sizi Shambe and uh, Jules Masinga, Josh Jules. Now he goes, mm. he goes by Chili M, you know, and he came on. Um, and I left the station for the first time in two weeks. I remember driving out and, you know, uh, I was driving to DK and I'm obviously tuned in, very happy, you know. Like my entire, my whole music collection is now at the station. You know, you've lined up the tracks, you've left the list, you're like, guys, play it like this, this is how I've been playing. Now it's kind of like the most talked about radio station at this point, and it's not even launched yet, you know. Uh, and we're now scared to even, geez, put on DJs. What if they don't like the DJs? Yeah. You know, that's because everybody was talking about the station that's just like kicking ass, they're not messing around, they're just playing music the whole time, no ads. <laughs> thinking the perfect yeah the kind of ideal radio station that yeah. doesn't exist and i'm thinking are we gonna need these damn ads exactly. at some point like what's wrong with you you know so so i was driving uh home and um and i get to an intersection uh at uh in, in just off nazarick you know as you as you go over uh into from deep cliff extension into the old uh, old dk and i'm at that intersection so as i'm approaching you know, um, I'm hearing louder and louder. So I'm like, no, man, you know, this ballad is not, doesn't have that much sound system. So I turn it down. Brother, as I get to the light and I stop, there's two houses on the corner, speakers outside, blurring wire. There was a taxi turning, blurring wire. There was a car behind me, blurring wire. Then there was my car. That whole intersection was on fire at the station. You know, I, I was there and I froze. You know, when the one part of you, you feel like you just want to get out the car, get on top of the roof of the car. You say, yeah. yeah, that's my station. But the one part of me, I just, I, I froze, man. I was, and the light went green and then it, and then people started hooting like, hey, like, get out yeah. the way, you know. And, and eventually I drove off and I got to my mom's and I broke down, man, in tears, hectically. What's wrong? I'm like, listen, you don't understand. Like, this was the first time, you know, I saw people respond to something I had done, you know. Uh, you know, it, it, it was kind of like a, 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 you know, sometimes you never realize what impact you've had. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is what we do. And we not even started yet, you know. And and I mean, you know, even at my mom's street, like everybody's jamming, man. It's just everywhere, you know. Um, so how did how did you? Got, I mean, did, were you conscious of the fact that you were creating something a little bit special while you were doing it? I mean, never mind the fact that you lived in the studio for two weeks. Did you guys think to yourselves, "Wow, we've or what the purpose of what you what you started?" I mean, did you did you have that at the outset? 
we're doing something a bit special or you know you okay so you have a feeling that it's extraordinary but you don't understand its impact yet and and you don't know what to do with it at that point uh, because you know we all came in for different reasons right uh, but but that purpose found us you know uh, you know some people came because they wanted to be big and famous some people came because they were you know madly passionately in love with the medium and the music and what it would do <coughs> you know some you know came because they were part of you know trends that were happening, you know, youth culture, people were part of youth culture. So, you know, it became a melting pot. But when that pot started to melt and everything came together, that that purpose found us. And it found us at different times and different places. And it was a continuous process. So with every day, you were learning new things about, you know, what you needed to do. So on the one point, we were concerned about, you know, uh, growing South African music and making South African music the greatest ever in the world. And then we were concerned about, you know, uh, getting young people to be, you know, more entrepreneurial, you know, more level-headed, more socially conscious. And then we were, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, issues of, you know, health and all types of things. You know, so, you know, we started to, I mean, (coughs) one of the turning points uh, for me was we, you know, took a group of uh, some of our guys um, I remember I I, I, I took Fetcho, uh, Fetcho and Tebos, uh, and 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 several other guys, and we went to kind of like nearby schools because there were all these young kids who would walk, you know, from their schools to the station, and some of them would bunk school just kind of to catch a glimpse of the guys. And we thought, hey guys, you know what? We need to go and talk to these kids, you know, um, and try and keep them in school, um, you know, and and try and keep them focused. Now. At the time when we were thinking about that, you know, the idea was to say, you know, we, we don't want to because YFM at some point was seen as a distraction, um, and we were not a distraction; we were an interruption, you know, uh, and 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 a and a great interruption at that. And and at that point, we were now sort of getting to grips with what we are and what we needed to do. So we do this tour and we go into the school and we tell the story, you know, personal stories to these kids. Um, and and a lot of them couldn't believe that, you know, for starters, we you know we were township guys, you know, because you know people thought, ah, you know, these must be like privileged boys who grew up in like the flashy part of townships or whatever. No, we're like, we came from the hood, much worse than some of you, you know. Um, and you know, we spoke about the importance of education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I mean, a year later, I'm at. Komaro crossing at the CNA buying a Christmas card or something and I see this young guy, you know, behind the till, you know, very neat dreads, you know, it's like doing his thing by the till. So I get there and I and he greets me by name. So I'm like, oh, okay, oh, he's probably a young guy who's a huge follower of why. Because a lot of people kind of know your name but they, mm-hmm. don't, they haven't seen you. So I thought, okay, Maybe he's been to one of our parties. He's too young to be at our parties. You know. So I'm like, oh, okay, how do I? He says, no, I can see you don't remember me. But um, you came to my school and you told, you know, us stories about, you know, uh, how you guys struggled through school and how you know it was important to, you know, uh, 
be helpful to society, be helpful in the family, don't be a spoiled brat, understand that you've got to work hard and do this and do that. And he says, this is why I'm here. I was really inspired by your story um, and I was hoping to see you one day and I never thought I would. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad I'm meeting you. you know, I was, you know, I'm, I'm now helping my moms, I'm helping you know, take myself to school. You know, this money's helping me, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was a you know, single parent household situation. He tells me all this in like three minutes flat. And I walk out, and you know, I commend him, and I walk out, and I thought to myself, Jesus. Um, you know, again, that was another moment where I realized something, you know, I had said, reached out to someone, and they acted on it, and um, and at the time, I only had, you know, a weekend show which was late at night. So I started thinking about all our guys who are on the station daily, doing shows. You know, and I went back and I called a DJ meeting on the Monday because I saw him on the weekend. I said, guys, remember when we did this and this and this a year ago? I said, yeah. I said, well, here's what happened with me. Now, what you guys have to realize is these kids latch onto everything we say. So we've got to rethink about some of the things that we do and say on air. Because, I mean, we were also young and carefree and we dissed people and we did all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, um, rude boy Paul, who's now Paul Missy, you know. Um, uh, well, always been Paul Missy. Uh, he was rude boy at the time. You know, he had a, a, a promo, a jingle, uh, you know. So it just says, rude boy Paul hit him against the wall, you know. <laughs> and I mean, you know, this, this was a thing with many different connotations and meanings to it, you know. Um, but so it, it does bring in, I mean, you, earlier you spoke about the responsibility of being able to broadcast to people. I mean, yeah. it does tie back to that in a big way. Um, sitting in front of that mic, you have an enormous amount of power yeah. as yeah. a broadcaster, yeah. especially when you speak for people. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and that became the conversation with the guys. We were like, um, we, we have to be responsible with the things that we say, um, you know, guys take on everything and I mean we had you know the how we had programmed that radio station in itself was totally different you know you had a repetitivity jam which was a show that was done by Osquito and Root Boy uh, which was you know young rappers coming in and you know kind of doing a battle live on air on a Wednesday night and we turned it into kind of like a small event invited clients that would come there you know freaked out because you know you had to take them through a bus into the rough parts of town <laughs> you know and, 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 and into uh, you know, Bertrams. Um, that show became the hip hop industry as you know it today. You know, everybody came from that show. Everybody from Double HP to Squatter Camp to everybody, you know, came from that show. Uh, and 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 adding that voice, uh, you know, we had a thing on Fresh's show, um, uh, you know, which was uh, called the Madhouse Hour. This is where house DJs came and kind of battle so you had like a whole growth in, in house music on the one side and a whole growth in hip hop music on the one side and right in the middle you had quite to kind of pulling everything together so there was a lot of um, expression going on and you, we needed to guide ourselves through that expression and how, how did you, I mean out of interest because the talent on air do they submit ideas and then there's like a you reach consensus about what sounds right or is there a station management team that sits and decides Here's the integrity of the station. We want to raise up 
the profile of young hip hop artists. We want to give exposure to house artists. Yeah. I mean, how does that work? Well, how it worked there um, was we had a CEO who understood that he had a team of people who were plugged into the system and who were part of the system. And his job was to make the system work from an ethos of the station point of view, uh, but to allow, you know, literally, you know, us, his people, to, you know, effectively create this magic. Um, and I had to apply that same thinking to the guys, where when guys submitted ideas, you know, uh, it wasn't a case of, no, 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 the station runs everything. We were not a heavily formatted and regulated environment like what most radio stations are. We weren't clinical, you know. Uh, and, and, and we weren't like that because we cared a lot about the audience uh, at the time uh, than we did about being clinical and appearing good for the advertiser, mm. you know. Because we felt the advertiser needed to come into our world because this is what was real and true in our world. We didn't need to feel, uh, you know, the need to kind of, oh, we have to be prim and proper. We've got guests coming, come, let's clean up and wear suits. No, we're kind of like, this is what we are. It doesn't mean we're dumb. doesn't mean we're not ambitious. doesn't mean, you know, uh, we are not going to do great things in life. Um, you know, it just means you've got to understand how we're doing it, you know. Uh, so, and a lot of advertisers miss that point, by the way. Uh, think sadly for the industry now because I think we'd be far you know uh, as a country you know more than anything but but what what that station created from the cultural point of view um, is larger than life it is something I'm acutely aware of which is and, and maybe we can touch about advertising a little bit later which is this need to represent the people you serve um, mm. so when you let the talent decide what best serves the community. That sounds like the best kind of radio. Actually, it sounds like the best kind of co company, to be honest with you, it, when it, people can represent the people they serve the best. It is, um, and it was, and that's, and that's, and that's why um, that that history will stay. You know, um, I mean, the impact that YFM has had. Um, in the South African landscape, that 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 book we still need to write, you mm. know, uh, that story we still need to tell proper, uh, because you are hearing now just a slither, you know, of of what it did. If you you know go back and talk to uh, uh, the many guys that were there at the time, because remember we were working um, as individuals and and as a unit. I mean. Uh, for me, it was one of the most unified businesses that I've ever worked at. You know, uh, we would go to a club together. It was the only time, <laughs> you know, in, in 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 my history of commercial radio where people hung out together. You know, uh, and 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 these were top popular guys who, you know what I mean. But everybody was always together, um, and. We saw things in the same environments in different ways and reflected them differently when we got back on air, which was incredible. How did you keep that togetherness alive? Because sometimes success breeds, I don't know, com competition, 
it, it, it breeds all the ugliness in humans actually it tends to so you've got all these guys rising up i mean the names that you've mentioned now have all gone on to do besides just you have gone on to do amazing things in the in the industry and that yeah. seems to have come with a some good nature actually i mean how did that work um, all these fiery characters we had to be a bit unorthodox in how we managed the station um, so there was different kinds of models that we could have chosen you know you open any business book it'll tell you about the different models yeah. we tried something called honesty integrity we tried something uh, that was more about freedom of expression we tried something that was more inclusive um, it didn't always work um, but it worked most times um, and when it worked it worked perfectly uh, and people could see the result you know of it um, and then people would strive to get the same result I mean DJ Spoo um, was you know on my case for the longest time trying to get into why um, and you know when I you know opened the door slightly for him you know he kind of walked in and held the door with his foot and allowed two other <laughs> people in you know um, and and no one chased them out uh, in fact we tried to accommodate them we weren't thinking about the budget and the salary line items so if you have all these people no and a lot of people around that time were like just give me a chance which is, is very similar to, to kind of today's nature. <clears throat> it's just that there are very few chances for people. I don't know what's happened there. Um, Do you think it's the chances for people or people have changed? Because there's so many young kids that now think that DJ Fresh well, became a DJ like that. Like, I can just get there and it's not about opening doors and letting two you people also, you also had, you also, You also had a small number of such back then as well they weren't as many I'll agree with you um, but like people have changed industries need to evolve accordingly brands need to evolve accordingly mm. everything has got to evolve accordingly uh, and I think somewhere somehow some things evolve faster than others uh, and somewhere somehow we don't understand the impact that we would have had on people so today maybe kids feel like that because um, of how much they were told it's possible, you know. But maybe we kind of forgot to tell them how hard they've got to work in the process, you know. Maybe somewhere looking from a distance and not really understanding that it involves a lot of work, you know, to do certain things. And to them it feels easy, you know. It's almost like watching a two-hour movie tell you a story that happened over 10 years. You think I think that's the nature of some of the social media though it's that it compacts history so successfully Absolutely. everything's in your timeline now I mean if you look at the metaphors of of digital it's all timeline yeah. and it's all these little 10 15 minute gaps of time yeah. everything happens fast yeah. yeah I mean people say you know throwback Thursday and it's interesting how different people understand just that simple thing yeah. you know somebody posts a picture from 10 years ago you know and says, you know, this is me here, here. And then somebody throws a picture from last week. Yeah. <laughs> throw back Thursday. And, and somehow it feels like these people feel it's the same amount exactly, of time. Exactly, yeah. Uh, or what happened in the news like a week ago. Absolutely. So I'm interested, what do you think, and this is a, probably quite a tough question, 
that could be another podcast in itself the main i'm just trying to think what's the legacy that you your that era in yfm left behind what did it do for um well i think the major thing um for me um yfm paid school fees for what i'm doing today um and i think that's that's the that's the big part to this thing um during the yfm days we struggled a lot with convincing advertisers of the value of black audiences in general mm. specifically young black people and i mean yfm yfm paid school fees for uh, um you know who I am and, and and what I am today, and and the things I'm able to do within Kaya. All of the people who are part of the Y culture are now a very significant part of what Kaya is. Um, these are you know the Afropolitans that we talk about. These are the middle class and upper middle class individuals we're talking about. These are people I feel like I know from years mm. ago these are close friends this is why I mean I always feel like you know you can't tell me about me because you know this is about me and I was a part of it I know about it I've been in it I understand it um, and and yes you've got to then think about how you keep up your knowledge about the many other changes that are happening inside but you know broad strokes I get it I know what this is about and you know the impact that we're able to make with Kaya now, and having literally repositioned the whole generation of people, um, and you know, and and taking them out of it's a section of the market too. These are probably the most important voices in this country today. Um, you know, it's been a huge achievement on our end. I mean, there's a whole um, litany of stuff that we can talk about. You know, where trends are concerned. Um, you know where achievements are concerned, um, but you know the point of the matter is that you know building a relationship with this portion of the market started all those years ago, uh, and similarly in in um, in the industry, in the advertising industry, um, you know one has gained um, you know enough um, experience, enough relationships to tell that story slightly different. I mean, it's not yet to Huru, but, um, you know, people listen to you now, you know, people take your phone mm -hmm. calls now, you know, people come out when you're speaking, um, you know, people give you a call and say, we wanting to do X, Y, Z, can we get this done? Um, you know, and, and the, the, the benefit of time starts to manifest, you know, you start to see how, um, how important it is to not kind of shortcut certain things that some, some some things will take time and you've got to work twice as hard and it will be tiring mm. and you know you'll be tired of educating the industry you'll be tired of saying you know um, do you still feel like that you're educating the industry because you've been in radio for quite a long time now I have I mean and do you still feel like the the industry at large needs it does uh, in a large way um, it does need need a lot of education. Look, the the challenge in in our country is that we're still racially polarized, uh, and that polarization uh, will always create gaps. I mean, you know, a station like I and I've I've 
lightly said to my team, I don't want to do this anymore. But, you know, a station like Kaya goes in and, you know, you have to say, oh, this is who our audience is. Or they're educated and they have homes and they have this and they have... And yet in other markets, it's assumed. I was about to say, you're legitimizing you know, so you these always, people are normal. You know, you have to explain yourself yeah. all the time. I'm like, no, I don't. I don't. I am yeah. part of the middle class and the upper middle class. Do you want to talk to me or not? Mm. You know, do you want to know about me or not? So, you know, let's have that conversation as opposed to, well, you know, like, why do I have to explain myself all the time? Um, and and a lot of it will be um, largely influenced by how society shifts. And I think in Johannesburg, um, you know, where you've had you know an advertising industry which was uh, you know predominantly white, um, but have had the benefit of seeing social change in their personal spaces mm-hmm. or whether at work or you know you now have new neighbors or now there's a different you know group of people shopping at your local shopping mall or now your kids play with different kinds of people so you kind of experience it so when you look at towns like Cape Town where you've got three percent no comment on that place <laughs> you know what I mean um, um, you start to see how disconnected, you know, the Cape Town industry would be to this, you know, whole vibe that's happening in Joburg. I mean, <laughs> it's it's amazing how, um, you know, people can tell where I'm from in Cape Town, and here I am thinking I'm acting and behaving normal. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So people say you're from Joey's, right? I'm like, okay, what did I do now? Is it something I said? Do I sound, you know? But no, it's because. You know, Cape Town is not used to seeing a certain kind of black person. You know, again, it's the thing of saying, why must I always feel the need to be assertive and this and that? I was going to say again, you're being asked to explain why you're different, but exactly. you're not different. I mean, that it's just such a bizarre country we live in, where that's still a reality. It's it's terrifying that it is, and it does manifest in creative work. Yes, yes. Um, and radio, given it's, I mean, if if from what we've discussed now, the importance of radio is that it informs the way people live. It does. Um, And to me, this is the chat we had ages ago, which was if people are advertising on that medium, they have as much effect as the talent does. I mean, it's quite scary to me that you wouldn't (laughs) think consciously about your message all the time. Yeah. Um, One of of the things that I've said was, um, I mean, I suppose this isn't an ideal world, but... You know, so if you think about certain kind of advertising, um, there's some castle ads, which were, you know, the obvious nation-building stuff. Uh, I mean, some of them were cheesy, but some of them were really good. Um, and they, you know, you had goosebumps, man. Mm. Like, you know, there's a uh, there's there's an ad now also on TV with, uh, I think it's a South African tourism with a blind guy. You know, you, you only tell right at the end that the guy is blind, you know, but he goes through all these different experiences, the sounds, is, you know, he's... It, it, it. So, and there's a lot of those types of examples of ads. Uh, and when I think about if, if as a country we were brave enough to agree on creating those kinds of messages just for kicks really no one is making mm. anything out of this thing it's just for kicks um, but when I say for kicks I mean you know putting it together but but the purpose of it uh, being 
we understand how powerful we are as a medium and as creatives. And we're going to create these random, uh, you know, kind of true but positive messages that are just going to be planted out. Mm. It's amazing what the environmental noise does to people and how it gets people to behave, you know. And if we just run a series of these things, you know, uh, just to get people feeling good about something, yes, we'll address the things that are happening, you know. Jeez, I mean, if I hear another guy in the story, I'll kill myself, mm. you know, if I hear another... And that's cool. People must talk about those things. If people are stealing money, let's talk about those things. Those things, but but it seems like there isn't anyone who cares enough about the good stuff, you know. Or or whoever does, you know, we're not finding each other, you know, in a sense where we can say, you know what, let's just do some feel good stuff, just for the hell of yeah. it, you know, because it doesn't matter what my circumstances are. Hell, I want to feel good about something. You know, I want to feel good about certain possibilities. I want to feel good about things I can do. Um, and, and create these kinds of messages that we kind of throw out into society all the time. You know, uh, given these platforms that we have, given this... I mean, you know, we will put together a relay for Mandela Day and, and 25,000 people will pitch to come and run. You know, you'll do a concert at the zoo, Mother's Day, you know, and you pre-sell, you know, online, 12,000 tickets. So people respond. People listen. I mean, that's what's so interesting. You were saying how in the early days of um, your campus rally, you had to put aside your, almost your ego, I guess, to say, Kwaito is something I should be on into that. It feels exactly the same for bad, bad advertising, which is put aside my ego for a change. Yeah. Let's just be part of something and create a relationship. Because if, if it's Mother's Day, let's not try and have a massive ad that says, don't forget to buy your mother Rama. Because um, <laughs> that's, that's how people tack on advertising. It yeah. should be some kind of involvement in the community. I think I've always loved radio as a medium for that exact reason, yeah. which is it feels like people who dig radio understand people. Yes. Um, and understand that, I mean, I was very briefly on a campus radio station and, and my ego came to the fore in that, I thought everyone loved metal music. Yeah. <laughs> Every white kid my age loved metal. You have to. What's wrong with you? Yeah, why am I on at two in the morning? That's so weird. Um, and it's only now that I reflect on that and think to myself, wow, what an egotistical trip to think everyone wants to listen to my taste. Yeah. Uh, and it, to me, great businesses and great advertisers can say my tastes aren't that important. Yeah. Like right now, that's maybe not as important as fulfilling a social need or giving out a good message. Absolutely. I mean, and, and those social messages in themselves don't have to be tacky, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the Dove sketches thing for me was incredible. Mm. You know, I mean, this, and, you know, the whole messaging had very little to do with Dove came right at the end. But it addressed something that a lot of women were preoccupied with, you know? But also reflected a human truth that, you know, we kind of all innately, we, we know this, uh, but, but you could never express it in the way that they did. It was great work. And, and those types of campaigns for me um, need 
time under the sun. I need to, you know, and my colleagues at the SABC and my colleagues at, you know, Prime Media everywhere else, we need to dedicate some time, you know, to just nation-building work, mm. you know, stuff that builds people, individuals, stuff that challenges you to do something, you know. That's And, and I think a lot of us are kind of caught up in this we need to make money here today you're under pressure from shareholders and I get that but but if you don't have an audience that's healthy and level headed and thinking we don't have a business you know, and, and also I mean if you look at your, your YFM days I can almost guarantee and maybe this is speaking um, out of opinion but in those first two weeks when you spent 24 hours in the studio you weren't thinking about the future of shareholders and the oh, future no, of no, economics. No, no. You were thinking no, about even. we're building something. No, uh, and and to absolutely. me, that's you want people feeling that rather than there's an, a hidden incentive or there's an, maybe there's an explicit incentive sometimes. And as a manager of talent, um, it is incredibly important to shield your talent from things that may distract them. In this particular case, I had a great CEO, Turk Hartford, who shielded me from shareholder issues uh, and he did it you know for long enough for me to kind of stand strong mm. be smart understand what's going on so even as much as I was shocked the first time I came into that world realizing hey no one cares about you know how many rappers you've created or how many it's like how much advertising have you sold <laughs> mm. but guys do you realize <laughs> like yeah but you know so now that you're the shield, what's what how what is your leadership style? Um, oh, that's quite a tough question, but what what is how do you think as of yourself as a leader? As, you know, honestly, I think that's a question for my team. Um, I I I'll tell you what I've been conscious of doing. Uh, what I've been conscious of doing is avoiding reading up on other leaders um, and you know trying techniques because I think that doesn't work uh, I think you 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 learn how people handled their own environments um, and that teaches you one thing and one thing only that you have your own environment that you need to handle and I think you can read one book and just mm. know that uh, you can read other things for inspiration, whatever. But, but the truth is, it's very important to understand your set of circumstances. So, um, I'm in uh, a post-apartheid business, which has uh, eighty percent of the staff is black. Uh, we have some white, some coloured, a um, couple of Indians here and there. <laughs> um, so it's quite a dynamic business from that point of view. We have different ages, right, within the station. Um, the average age internally now is probably uh, maybe 34, uh, which is perfect. Um, but it also means that you've got a mix of generations. You know, you've got some millennia in your space, and then you know you've got uh, you know uh, early early kind of generations. Now, all of these things come with different sets of circumstances. Uh, so one example is um, in most 
African cultures, um, when someone dies, uh, the, in fact, let me start with what the policy says. So <laughs> any policy, HR, everybody, uh, we have HR. HR will say, you have uh, three days compassionate leave, right? And if you want more days, then you kind of looked into your own leave days. So part that, that's policy, that's what happens as, you know, labor law, that's mm. what governs all of us, and that's what makes it fair. Now, in, um, and I will call it not black culture, but black circumstance, and I'll explain to you why I say black circumstance. So, in most black people's lives, um, <coughs> there's, there's, there's five or six days before someone gets buried, okay? Um, and people say it's culture, but it actually isn't culture, and it's because, um, you know, during, uh, group areas act and, and, and you know kind of forced uh, labor situations where people were taken from their farms and their lands to come dig up gold when someone died together people it took about a week to do that right uh, but back in the day when people lived normally and you know you lived in your village and when somebody died I mean they probably got buried the same day or mm. the next day why would you keep them for seven days when everyone's there so this whole thing came about because you know a lot of people uh, needed to be called because families were you know spread apart. Some have to ask to, some are not even allowed to go, and so forth and so forth. Seven days, right? Uh, some was a, a a money issue, you know, because people didn't have you know money readily available to kind of pay for a funeral. So you, you kind of need time to you know sort of you know some people still stay two three weeks because people are raising money to run the funeral. Um, <coughs> so it became culture in quotes mm. but actually isn't uh, circumstance so when when somebody has a death in their nucleus family right uh, and again nucleus family is something totally different in uh, you know kind of like the western thinking it's man wife two and a half kids that never make up what the half is a smaller child you know <laughs> a half a child yeah, a half a child you know uh uh, again, in 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 black families, because of that fragmentation and so forth and so forth, you find different kinds of formations of family. So, my nucleus is not the next guy's nucleus. I could have my uncle, my grandmother, and my mother in the same house. That's my nucleus family because my father, I don't know the guy, maybe he lives somewhere else, whatever. Uh, so you get different kinds of formations. So first, when somebody comes to you and they say, uh, "There's a death in the family," right? First thing you you know, obviously you offer your condolences and you know, you know, is it in your family, family, nucleus family? And say yes. And they say who? Uh, they say it's my uncle. I don't question that mm. because already I understand that, you know. Um, and you know, fine, you kind of help where you help. Sometimes people need money. Sometimes all they want is time. And you say, okay, fine. You know, they get their three days. Now at that point, I'm I'm not thinking about the week. Because generally what happens is you get, so the one week uh, is preparation for burial, then you've got burial. Uh, and then there's another week where there's a cleansing ceremony. Right? Uh, so when you think about it, if somebody comes to you here and they say, I have a death in the family, and you operate on a three-day thing, in my head, I'm thinking, I don't have this person for two weeks. Mm. Immediately, at this point, I'm already thinking, okay, I don't have this person for two weeks. 
how do I support them throughout the two weeks? And how do I support the teams that they're working with? Because they will need some gap fillers at that point. And how do I make their integration coming back to work uh, easier? But also, how do I deal with the fact that whilst they may choose to be away for the entire week, there may be days they just want to escape their home and come to work, mm. right? How do you, when they're at work, create an environment where you know we're not crowding them and feeling sorry for them? It's kind of like, but also, how do I deal with the fact that they may be here, but they actually aren't here, so I can't expect production out of them, you know? Now. Any other CEO from anywhere around the world will tell you that's a weak thing. We're all about production and do this and do this. But the point is you don't have this person for two weeks. Mentally, they are not with you. The best thing you can do for them is support them throughout that time. Your company will not close down simply because one employee is going through a hard time in two weeks. When they come back, right, the level of support they've received renews their resolve in carrying on you know, with the business, because here they feel, here's somebody, you know, who, you know, here's a company that cared about my situation, cared about my circumstances, and, you know, gave me the right support. Now, you've also got to have <coughs> the wisdom to, you know, understand that it, it will not be the same for everyone, and that you've got to manage that situation as well, because some people might take advantage of it, some people might not want it, some, you know, but the fact that you understood from where it go what that situation meant for the business is a very important thing. And, you know, uh, Jack Walsh could never write that for you. Mm. You know, so you can read Jack all you want, you know. Uh, but he's he's not going to play that scenario to you. So for me, I would want to probably read up on things that, you know, uh, uh, blacks don't have corporate cultures. We don't have a corporate culture because we've never run a corporate culture. So we are literally... Um, writing a new chapter on how to run a South African company, you know, um, you know that's a that's an example in the black side of things. I can use an example in the white side of things where someone is depressed for a week because their dog died. Mm. Okay, now, and I choose that example on purpose because our care for pets is different, mm. and now that we kind of, you know, slowly integrating. Um, it's it, So if my pet died, I'd feel very bad and I'd be depressed. But I need to go to work and I need to work. I can't, mm. like, people can't huddle around me the whole day because of, you know what I mean? That's, yeah. uh, you know, so let's say I'm cruel to my pet, but geez, my pet died, but I've, I've got to carry on. I have, you it's, know. A, it's a priority thing. Like, I, t- I mean, I totally get what you're saying, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and so I've got to have the wisdom to support that staff member who's just had that kind of thing. And I've, you know, I've done that before. You know, I've, I've like, listen, guys, you know, this person is going through a tough time. Okay. We must be there and support them because it's not about who or what they lose. It's how they feel, right, and what they need that's important for us. And it's how you support that. I mean, you know, you have... I've, hey man, like in the 20 odd years that I've been involved in the game, I've had staff hooked on drugs, you know. Uh, and you can choose to kind of say, listen, I'm not this, I'm not getting into this, you you get out, yeah. you know, because I don't do that stuff and I don't condone that stuff and whatever. Oh, you, I've, listen man, counseled people, I've had sessions with guys. And because you've got to try, you know, you've got to want 
to care enough about your people. Uh, so to answer your question, I try to be a people-centric kind of leader, you know, uh, you know a manager that, that tries and draws the best out of people when they're at their best and gives support when they need it most. Uh, that that's pretty much you know my thing yeah. and so given this is a creative business and, and how do you support your very diverse team in finding out about the the people they serve and speaking with a relatively common language you know like yeah. for me that must be a massive challenge if you've got a very diverse team how do you keep them coherent when they are on air or when they do produce messages or when they do come up with ideas for this, for this business? it's always about the central organizing principle who are we trying to get to and then appreciating that um, everyone will choose a different route as long as it's ending up in the same destination I'm okay mm. the challenge comes when somebody chooses a different route which takes us somewhere where we, you know and, and you can see that this is like going nowhere slowly or, or sometimes quick fast you know in a hurry but um one of the things I, I use in the, as an expression is, you know, with with the Americans, love them or hate them, um, even in their politics, they all agree, okay, that America must be a great nation and it must be greater than everybody and it must be everybody's big brother. All of them agree mm. on that. The only thing they differ about is how to get there. So it will be a debate on policy or whatever the issues are. Similarly, the mark of great companies is understanding, you know, their customer and and honestly serving that customer and that customer's needs um, and looking to find many different ways. Now, when you have a diverse team, the beauty about it is somewhere along the line, in fact, we have to follow different routes, you know, because if all of us are working on a linear, you know, God forbid, if that is the wrong way, we're all dead. Mm. But if you have different kinds of approaches into, into the situation, you know, you your job is to kind of conduct all of that stuff like a choir and make it sound the same, you know, because it is going towards the same thing. Um, you know, when you have an orchestra with, you know, 60 people on stage, each with different sets of instruments, I mean, there can be disaster, you know, or there can be harmony, you know, mm. as long as you know how to get them to play those notes. And, and that's my job. My job is to, is to coordinate, to conduct that choir, really, is to get all these creative voices you know, to each get their shine and then each blend into others and then all to sing together and then each to allow a soloist. That, you know what I mean? So the yeah. mark of any great band uh, is understanding all those different dynamics and, 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 and that's how I, I, I try and, and run the station. Great. I think we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Greg. It's been really interesting chatting to you. Thanks, man. Thank cool. you for no, having it's me. It's been awesome. <laughs>